Hey everybody, it's me, Erica. And Rachel. And you are listening to Story Crime the Podcast. Woo! Woo! fantastic actually how are you doing you know what i couldn't be better couldn't be better it's been a wild uh week day whatever i'm tired but i'm actually <laughs> loving life still light out and it's like almost seven thirty, and that brings me so much joy that i don't even care what else is going on yeah well you know yesterday i went out and i wore my coat on my way out and when i got to my car i took it off and I left Whoa. it in the car while I ran all my errands, and it was awesome. Yeah, yesterday was so beautiful. Summer Today's is coming, Erica. I'm so uh, excited. <laughs> we still got a while yet, but I'm excited too. Um, before we get started today, Rachel, I have something that's been um, heavy on my mind, and um, since yesterday, since last night, actually, and <laughs> so uh, it's it's very heavy. And I need to, like, put this out into the universe because I don't want to have this thought. And then it happens in November. And I was like, see? And I didn't tell anyone. So. Oh. But are you trying to manifest it or not manifest it? I'm making a prediction and, oh, trying, a to man- and trying to manifest it at the same time. So, without further gotcha. ado. This spring... And I guess February, early, like late winter, early spring, two shows were on the air at the same time. Okay. Mm-hmm. They overlapped. Both of them had Pedro Pascal in the, in it. And they were, he was escorting a child of some sort from place to place, taking care of them, enjoying life. He's become a household name between the Mandalorian and the Last of Us. And everybody loves him. He is like... Everybody's sweetheart right now. So my okay. prediction is, and if I get it right, you owe me twenty dollars. I'm holding. Oh, you to I, no! I never even agreed to that at all. That you can't just say you owe me. <laughs> all right. Well, if you get it wrong, you owe me a hundred dollars. Fine. We take the money out of it. <laughs> you owe me a high five. No, if I am right about this, in November, Stephen Colbert announces the sexiest man alive every November. Why Stephen Colbert? That seems like the most random. And is it People's Sexiest Man Alive? Yes, it is. And Stephen Colbert announces it? It is Stephen Colbert that announces this every year. I predict, and I'm going to set a reminder on my phone for November. For November 1st, because I don't know what day it comes out. I just want to remind myself in November to keep watching. Because I predict that the sexiest man alive this year is going to be Pedro Pascal. Oh. And I guarantee you there's going to be a sexy-ass photo of him holding that baby Grogu from The Mandalorian. (laughs) Well, good. Cool. I'm all down for sexy pics. (laughs) That's just... we just have to wait. Wait until November. I know it's only March, but I I had the thought last night, and uh, don't ask me why. It just popped in my head, and I said, I bet you that's going to happen. And Rob was like, I bet you're right. And I was like, I need to say this in the podcast, because if I am right, I want everyone to know that in March, I predicted it. There you go. It's been recorded. Fortune teller Erica right here. Not only does she have the deets, but she has the future. 
the future. You got it. <laughs> right here. So, friends, if Pedro Pascal is Sexiest Man Alive, you heard it here first on Story Crime in March. Bam. Sorry, Colbert. Bam. <laughs> to steal your thunder. Um, yeah. So that is my big talking thing. <laughs> you got anything today? I do not. No. Tapped out. All right. So we do have a very long, very long episode today. And you can probably tell by the title of it that it's about the Rhymer twins. And I don't know if a lot of people have heard about this, but I can promise you that I have not heard of it. Um, I had not, I have heard about it now. I've had no very, (laughs) I know a lot about it now, but um, at the time I, that I heard, but I I had not And so Rachel asked me earlier, how, how did you hear, how did you hear about the story? How could you have never, and I told her to wait until we were on here recording because it's actually a funny story. So I, I, when I have really bad days, I, I don't like to share like those emotions. I, I tend to bury them deep inside you know, myself. I'm a therapist, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, te- I tend to bury them deep, but then I like funnel those negative emotions into something else. So <laughs> one thing I do is I sometimes go onto YouTube and I watch um, YouTube channels like the Daily Wire, which is like a very far right Republican, oh, very back ass backwards views, and I funnel. You know what? All... I'm having a bad day. Let me make it worse. Yeah, and I funnel all my anger into those backwards ass people. So I was mm. watching a video on that one of the young ladies on the Daily Wire was doing, and uh, it was on. I don't even remember what is on. But another thing I do when I when I do this is to really get myself fired up if I if I really need it. A little extra is I read the comments. To really crank it up a notch. Yeah, I read the comments that people are posting oh, underneath no! the videos. No, never read the comments. So I read the comments and somebody like a lot of the comments were like BS and I was like, these people are assholes. I hate every single one of you and you're the reason why my day has been so shitty. You fucking <laughs> Do you ever get I... in internet fights? No, I never comment back. I just read them just to fire myself up and then Mm -hmm. it gets it out of my system. So one of the uh, comments on one of these videos that I was watching just said, this reminds me so much of the case of the Rhymer twins. Everyone should check that out. More light needs to be shot on it. It's it's completely devastating. So I was like, oh. (laughs) Challenge accepted. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, I'll check it out. So I just typed into YouTube the Rhymer twins and I watched this documentary about the the twins that we're going to be talking about today and they were right it's a story that i think should be talked about more not for the reasons that they were saying in these daily wire videos and and the comments there but just because i don't think i had never heard of it it is a canadian case and Uh it's just it was so wild and it's not necessarily true crime tonight guys i i think it might be to me there were some things where i was like well that's got to be illegal but um <laughs> but um no. it's not it's necessarily true crime in the sense that we usually talk about there's no murder in this there's no you'll see when we get into it okay. um however so it's like a, is this true crime or not episode? yeah but it's definitely Ooh. a very very sad case a very tragic case um I, the book I read about this, it's called As Nature Made As Nature Made Me um, by an author 
called, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting everything today, Rachel. Hold on, I gotta find the author's name. I think his name is John Colapinto. Um, and it was written with one of the Raymer twins, but it was a wonderful book. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, even though it was really sad. It was really well written. It was a heartbreaking story, but a great, a great book to read really well laid out. Um, but before I get started on it today, I do want to make a disclaimer because we will be covering some sensitive topics that include child abuse, suicide, but also intersex and, and, and intersexuality and gender reassignment surgeries. And I know that those, especially those two last topics can be very sensitive. All those topics can be very sensitive (laughs) to people. So, um, and we know and appreciate that everyone's opinion on some of these topics are going to be varied and personal. And myself as a, you know, biological heterosexual female, I can't begin to understand the struggles of certain people in these communities. So, and I'm not going to pretend to, Throughout this, I'm just going to try yeah. to deliver, like, my only goal in the story is to, is to tell you about one individual and the his tragic, very sad story that happened to him. So, without further ado, this is the story of the Reimer family and the Reimer twins and their experiences with one of the most renowned psycho- uh, psychologists, Dr. Oh. John Money. So, Dr. John Money, like M-O-N-E-Y. Yes. Oh, okay. Brenda Reimer had always felt different. She was a young girl growing up in the 70s. She wore pretty dresses and had a collection of Barbies and other dolls. She helped her mother with all the household chores and acted in the stereotypical way that young girls were supposed to act. Sometimes. But deep down inside, Brenda always felt different. She would watch her brother Brian climb trees and play in the mud. She loved his clothes and wanted to wear his pants and t-shirts. She wanted to pee standing up and play with tractors and do all the things that little boys do. And she didn't understand why she wasn't allowed to and why she felt so different, but she was. Sorry, but she knew she was. And something inside her kept screaming out, I want to be a boy. So at around the age of 15, Brenda would tell her family about these feelings and started a process. This started the process of Brenda transitioning from female to male. Choosing his new name, David, and working with doctors to establish a safe and healthy treatment plan while he transitioned. Wow. In the 70s? David's however. parents were... Okay, sorry. However, <laughs> not everything in the story is quite as simple as it sounds on the surface. David's previous life had been almost a complete and utter lie. And to give you this entire picture, we are going to start right at the beginning before David was even born. And how one child's life was impacted in ways that would have devastating effects as he grew from baby to adolescence to adulthood. And one man from the psychological field of study who was behind it all. Oh, shit. What a buildup, Erica. I know. Holy. I worked hard on that opening. (laughs) And I almost ruined it. Sorry. That's okay. So David's uh, parents were Rob Reimer and Janet Schultz, and they were both from Manitoba, Canada. They both came from Mennonite families, but as they grew up into teenagers, they really became disillusioned by the strict rules of their religion and eventually started rebelling. Now, both of them were forced by their parents to drop out of school really young, and we grew up in a community where there are a lot of Mennonite families, and we've seen this. It is just something really that's practiced in their religion that is quite normal. Um, 
but Janet and Rob were both, even though they didn't know each other at the time when, when they left school, they weren't happy just living this lifestyle. They wanted to get out and do more. Now, Janet would rebel against her mom mainly by going on dates with as many boys as she possibly could. And this yes, was... Janet. Get it. <laughs> this would last until about the late 50s when she was finally introduced to Ron by her cousin's boyfriend. And she was immediately attracted attracted to him in the moment that they met. And, spoiler alert, Ron was too. <laughs> Although Ooh. he didn't say it at first. He was really shy. And Janet was like, when are you going to ask me out? Because, like, here I am. Right? So they were quite... buddy. (laughs) Yeah. They were quite young. They were like uh, 16 and 18, I think, at the time. Janet was 16. Mm. Ron was 18. So the two dated for about three years, and then they made the move to Winnipeg, and each of them had their own place, but they would spend pretty much all of their time together when they were in Winnipeg. So uh, one month, Janet missed her period, and this would change everything for the... Ron and Janet, as life as they know it, was going to be completely different. Uh, The couple, like I said, was really young. When Janet got pregnant, she was only 18, and Ron was just about to turn 20. But knowing that they were soon going to be parents, they decided that they would get married. Mm -hmm. It's the right thing to do. This is the late 50s, or this is mid-60s, I guess, so that wasn't uncommon. They were married on December 19th, 1964. And just to stick it to their very religious parents, who really didn't approve of either of their lifestyles at this point, they refused to be married in a Mennonite church, which I think is a really beautiful thing for them. You guys go and do your thing. (laughs) Live your life. Now, the two would move into a small one-bedroom apartment. Janet worked as a waitress, and Ron worked at a window factory. And they were just scraping by, just barely at this time. And knew that with the baby coming, they were going to have to figure out something to support themselves and their growing family. And this was made even more clear to them when, at one of her OB appointments, Ron and Janet were given the really great news that they weren't having just one baby, but two. They were having identical twins. Awesome. How how do you... They didn't have ultrasounds back then. In the 60s, I think they did. Did they? I believe so. Or maybe they would have heard two heartbeats. Oh, okay. I, did, I actually didn't. I didn't look into that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I'll have did. to find that out. Ultrasounds. I wonder when it was invented. I don't know. I know they definitely didn't when my dad was in utero because he was a twin, but they didn't know that, <laughs> and his twin didn't make it. Unfortunately, did eat him. No, he the the other twin was born, but I think Aww. it was too late. According to the stories I know, Dad, if I'm wrong about that, help me. I, I'm not sure. But could you imagine two of my... Yeah, <laughs> right, just write in the comments below. <laughs> um, yeah, no. No, could you imagine your dad's? That would have been a riot. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. It, I can't imagine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they, the, the couple was elated to be bringing two babies into the world. They were quite excited, but they needed more money. And thankfully, halfway through Janet's pregnancy, Ron would actually find a union job paying substantially more money, and they were able to move into a larger two-bedroom apartment. Good for them. On, yeah. On August 22nd, 1965, Janet went into labor and after several hours gave birth to two beautiful twin boys. They called their boys Bruce, who was the eldest by 12 minutes, and Brian. Now, Bruce was a little underweight after his birth, so he would remain in hospital for several days until he was able to reach a more healthy level of chubby babiness, which we all love to see. I love a good, cute, chubby babe. 
Uh, once home, Bruce tended to be the more rambunctious of the twins, and while little Brian seemed to be more calm and peaceful, one thing they both had in common was that they looked exactly like their mother. Mm-hmm. And Janet took to motherhood like a bee to honey. And thankfully, Ron actually was able to get a raise, which allowed them to move to a house, giving the family more room to grow and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Love it. Love those union jobs. You know? <laughs> yep. And everything was coming up Millhouse for the Raymer family mm-hmm. at this point. So now at about seven months old, Janet noticed that the boys were having a lot of pain and discomfort when they were urinating. And so while she was changing their diapers, she was she would change their diapers to see if that was the problem, feed them, burp them, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah. she ended up taking a closer look at their penises and noticed that the foreskins uh, looked like they were sealing. She decided to take them to the pediatrician and get to the bottom of what was happening to the kids. And after an examination, the doctor let Janet know that the twins were uh, suffering from a very common condition, which I knew nothing about because I am a girl. But this condition is called phimosis. And this is straight from Wikipedia. And it says phimosis. So you know it's legit. <laughs> Wikipedia is pretty good. They have sort of, they cite all their sources on there. I'm just I, I know. I know that people have a beef with wikipedia like a lot of people say oh i I do research outside that but honestly like i always start research for things on wikipedia and i check every source and i go through that's how i get lots of different sources Mm, and then i use other ones as well but so you use wikipedia the way it's intended to be used i guess so yeah i don't just like go and like write down all the cliff notes and like here's our Mm -hmm. obviously that's not what i do in our (laughs) podcast when we have like four episodes worth of just pick wikipedia notes no (laughs) But I like Wikipedia because it gives you a, a starting off point. Anyways, yeah. from Wikipedia, it says that phimosis is a condition in which the foreskin of the penis cannot stretch and allow it to be pulled back past the head of the penis. And in mm. young boys, it is normal not to be able to pull the foreskin back at all. However, over 90% of cases will resolve themselves at least by the age of seven, probably oh. before, probably before mm. that. Now, the doctor told Janet that even though this issue would probably naturally resolve itself, to get it taken care of so the boys weren't in pain anymore, they could simply just be circumcised and be done with sure. it. So Janet and Ron agreed that this was probably the best option, and the operation for the circumcision was scheduled for April 27th, 1966. And again, neither parent had any worries or concerns about this procedure. This was a common surgery at the hospital they were having that they were having the surgery at, plus this hospital had a great reputation. Nothing to worry about, essentially. Sounds good. Now, the boys went in for surgery that day. The physician who was who would usually perform cir- circumcisions was actually off that day. I'm not sure why. But it, <laughs> they had a stand-in? Yeah, oh, so, no. yeah, they did. They had another doctor named Dr. Jean-Marie, I apologize if I say this wrong, Jean-Marie Hot, a general practitioner, and he was going to fill that role for the day. So a general practitioner would have some experience doing this. I don't think they would just be like, well, newbie. First day on the job, here's a scalpel. Welcome, Have at her. Welcome to the job, kid. Here's a yeah. scalpel. Yeah. So he he would have had experience. Now, Bruce was the first baby to enter surgery, and this was just random selection. They just walked in and grabbed one of the twins and headed on their way. And once in the operation room, it's not clear exactly what happened, but what is known is that something went very wrong. Oh, no. So, according to the anesthesiologist, the doctor used a metal clamp to secure the piece of foreskin that was being removed. 
Dr. Hone also elected to use a new tool called the bovi cautery machine. <gasps> or the bovi cautery machine. Instead of a regular scalpel to perform the surgery. Now, this cautery tool uses electric current to burn the edges of an incision, which in turn would seal the blood vessels and prevent any kind of excess bleeding from happening. Sure. So as the doctor began the procedure, other operating room personnel testified that the machine was in working order and was set to the lowest amount of heat when he started. So he attempted the first cut and it didn't sever the flesh. So the heat was turned up just a smidge. When the second cuts, when the second um, cut still didn't sever the flesh, it was turned up again. Oh, just pick up a fucking scalpel at this point. (laughs) And so the heat was turned up yet a third time. Mm. And on this third time, the anesthesiologist in the room recalled hearing a sound that sounded like... Uh, steak being served or seared on a grill. Son of a oh, and the smell of burning flesh was probably oh, oh god. I'm, I wrote in my notes that I imagine terrible. every man in the room grabbed their dicks and was like, "What did you do? Yeah. What did you do?" Yeah. So I'm even appara- grabbing my dick and I don't have one. Like, yeah, what did you do? Now, according to other operating room staff. A smell of cooked meat filled the room, oh. and a and smoke was coming from around the baby's groin region. Is this like a lawsuit waiting to happen? I feel. Long story short, baby Bruce's penis was effectively burnt off, leaving only a fragment of his organ. Are at you seven months old? Fucking kidding me! Now, a urologist was quickly brought in to examine Bruce and noticed that his genitals at this time were white in color and extremely firm, which would be normal for a burn. If you've ever burnt yourself, you might notice that the area is white and and hard. Especially that degree of burn. But hold on. So instead of just snipping at his foreskin, he took this whole baby's dick off? It burned because the heat was... Because what they assumed was that because of the um, clamp... Or not the clamp, the... um, Oh my gosh, the metal... Yeah, he clamped the clamp. The, the clamp, yes. The clamp that was yeah. there, it was metal. So when, what I would imagine is that when the heat was turned up enough, it would have conducted enough heat off that metal to, <gasps> yeah. Just took the whole fucking thing. I don't, oh, I don't necessarily want to think about exactly. And thank goodness, because Bruce was seven months old, because normally babies, when they're really new, like fresh babies, like old. Yeah. they aren't put under for a no, circumcision. Just... But because Bruce was seven months old... At the time. Oh my god. He was under. under, Yeah, yeah, they had to put him under. So thank goodness for that. That he was not awake for this. Um, Floored right now. That's definitely illegal. Yeah, this is true crime. (laughs) (laughs) So after the urologist came in and inspected Bruce, the decision was made that to quickly perform a surgery where he would be equipped with a catheter so that he was able to pass urine into a bag because that was like the most important thing that they needed to get. Mm-hmm. figured out right and after this the baby was taken to the burn ward of the hospital for further assessment needless to say his twin brother brian would not undergo surgery that day yeah maybe not or at least not with that fuck like pick up a scalpel you dumb <laughs> right. shit oh my god janan and ron were called by the hospital later that morning and told that they needed to come in and see the doctor but they weren't given any details as to why 
only that an accident had happened. I oh can't imagine. So they were probably freaking out. Now, they said that they could tell by the tone of the caller's voice that this was going to be really bad news, but they just didn't know what it could be, right? Mm-hmm. And apparently, and if anybody's from Manitoba and um, remember this from the 60s, or your parents or your grandparents remember this, on the morning of the surgery, the reason why Janet and Ron weren't at the hospital was because the babies had to be admitted the night before, because mm-hmm. even though this is in mid-April... There was like a monumental sized blizzard that they knew was coming to Manitoba that day. So in Manitoba, uh, that checks out. Doesn't yeah. matter if it's April or July. Right. So that's why Ron and Janet weren't at the hospital during this. They were gonna come after and pick the boys up after a routine circumcision. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, so they were trying to make their way through the city as fast as they could, but it took forever and their minds were spinning. They were kind of in panic mode. And they just, like, they just couldn't understand how this, such a routine surgery would go sideways. They they just didn't understand what was happening. So when they finally arrived at the hospital, they were led into Dr. Holt's office and were told that Bruce had been injured during his surgery and his penis had been burned. They didn't tell them the extent of the burn at this point, but just that it had been burnt. Now, Janet and Ron both, of course, were like, "I, we want to see our baby. Like, take yeah. us to him. And the doctor said that he was recovering from the catheter surgery. Not to worry. You could come back tomorrow. But for now, just take Brian home. And I had to put in my notes. I was like, this isn't like a car that just got into an accident. And yeah. the guy at the shop is like, no worries. We'll take care of it. Come back in the morning. This is a baby. Like, yes. just let the, the people see take their baby. My fucking baby. Not only that, but who gave you permission to that catheter surgery? Like, I know you probably had to, but oh, don't it you have been... to run that by the parents at no, least a little bit? Not for that, because that would have been at this point, like, like a life-saving thing, because okay. the, if they was fucked a... up in the first place. Right. If he wow. hadn't been able to expel urine. Yeah. It was like some bad things that. I'm sure could happen. I don't know what bad things, but I'm sure something bad would happen. Yeah, now, wild. regardless of, you know, not wanting to leave the hospital, Janet and Ron did as they were told and went home, but they did come back early the next day to get their first glimpse of Bruce's injuries. Now, his father, Ron, stated, quote, I, it was blackened and it was sort of like mm. a piece of string. It looked like a piece of charcoal and I knew it wasn't going to come back to life after that. Oh, my God. Now, in As the coming... the dad, imagine what he's thinking. Like, right. The pain probably just surged through his body. Well, I think they were furious, sad, oh, worried. Yeah. There was a myriad of emotions going through mm-hmm. them. Now, over the next coming days, Bruce's penis would eventually just end up drying up and falling off. And over the coming oh, days and weeks, Bruce would be examined by several doctors and specialists trying to figure out what the best next steps to take would be. But they offer like what the fuck? Well, just to help Bruce in the situation. No, I know, but like, how has the lawsuit not been filed already? No, there is a suit that was. They they do file a suit. It's not they settle with the hospital, um, but they do file a suit. I don't talk very much about that, but it does come up a bit later. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, all these doctors and special specialists didn't really offer a lot of hope to the Ramers. And this was the 60s, so, like, genital reconstruction was kind of in its infancy at this time, and not a lot of was known about it. So, doctors would tell Ron and Janet that even if they were able to successfully construct or recreate a penis, it would serve only as a way to urinate and nothing else. So, 
there would it wouldn't look like or feel like or perform like a penis in any other way. A psychologist for the hospital would tell Ron and Janet that he predicted, get this, so on top of everything that's already happened, this is what your psychologist is telling you. He predicted that Bruce will be, quote, unable to live a normal sex life from the time of adolescence. Then he will be unable to consummate marriage or have a normal heterosexual relations. And that he will have to recognize that he is incomplete, physically defective, and that he must live apart. Um, well, thank you, doctor. You need to live a life in solitude because you don't have a working penis. Well, and like, can you imagine being that parent? You're like, what can we do? How can it be held while your kid is going to be a loner and have no friends and never get married and basically shouldn't move to the mountains as a hermit and die alone? So thanks. There's no point for your existence. It's like, like, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming in. Would you like fries with that? All right. (laughs) See you later. Have a good day. Like fucking hell. Bedside manner, people. I don't understand. No, <laughs> just it's just an unbelievable statement to say bedside. Like no matter how nicely you present it, it's just those. It's just what the fuck. And I get again. I get this is the '60s, and we always say this is a different time. But like that doesn't mean you have to be rude. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, like, I don't understand. Now you can imagine that for two fairly young parents, and because like I said, they dropped out of school really early. Like I think Janet had maybe a grade nine education. Oh shit! Um, yeah. This was all mixed with the limited knowledge that just people in general had at the time when it came to, like, things like gender identity and the similar ideas with that. It was a very scary time for them, especially when they were being told that their baby's future was going to be just, like, fraught with despair because of the fact that his genitals had been irreversibly damaged and destroyed by doctors. And you know what's like, I'm just thinking about if this was today and it was reverse where it wasn't a little baby boy and it was a baby girl and they were like, oh, because she can't like do her womanly duties and reproduce, she must live alone. Like, yeah, right. Well, we would be raging. Well, can you was like, don't reduce me to my uterus. Well, and I know that like... <sighs> It's just, I was thinking about this because it was really funny to me when I was reading this. And I was like, well, what if something had happened and like this kid had lost his arm? Would they be like, he's going to live a life of despair? Just send him away. Take him out behind the barn and shoot him. He doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have a life. Bye. literally reduced this kid to his genitals. And it's like, no, that's, he's still a human being. What the fuck? A pediatrician named Dr. Harry Metavoy would also consult on Bruce's case, and he would recommend that Janet and Ron should have Bruce seen by one of the major American medical centers. Mm. He would refer them to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and they would take the train across the border to meet with doctors there. They would make similar recommendations as the doctors in Manitoba, but unfortunately also gave them the same warnings. They said that it (laughs) was recommended... The what? The loser warnings? (laughs) Not quite. They said that it was recommended that Bruce have some sort of artificial phallus constructed before he started school, but this kind of procedure would require multiple, like, follow-up surgeries, I guess, throughout Bruce's childhood, and in terms of functionality and just the cosmetics of it all, results would not be promising. So listen, kid, you're gonna have a fucked up looking dick, so you might as well just move out to the woods and live a life by yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now <laughs> Ron and Janet left that meeting at the Mayo Clinic feeling defeated and utterly hopeless. Mm-hmm. They were scared and worried that their son was never gonna live a normal life, that he would never experience the joy and happiness of having a first love, getting married, having children, and all of that because this happened 
so early in his life and they felt they were responsible. They It was devastating to them. They felt so much guilt over this. Aww. And to, com- to compound that guilt and sorrow that they were feeling, the condition that the two boys had originally gone in to correct had naturally corrected itself when it <gasps> came to Bruce's twin brother, Brian, just a few weeks no. later. A few weeks? No. Yeah. <gasps> Holy shitballs. It's very sad. Yeah. Now, this would cause both parents to withdraw. They would conceal the truth about what had happened to Bruce from friends and family. Janet didn't want to hang around her other mother friends as she hated seeing them so happy and excited about their babies while she struggled with the guilt of what happened on her own. Mm-hmm. To her own, sorry. They felt, uh, they really felt that they couldn't even go on a date or anything as they were afraid that any babysitter they hired might gossip about their son's condition. Mm-hmm. So I imagine they were living in pure hell. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. And that guilt would be just overwhelming. Yeah. Now, shortly after their twins' first birthday, and about 10 months after the botched surgery, Ron and Janet turned on their television after the kids went to sleep one night to watch a very popular Canadian television news series at the time called This Hour Has Seven Days. Oh, oh my God. Do you remember This Hour Has Seven yeah. Minutes or 22, 22 Minutes? 22 Minutes. And I did not know that that was a spoof of the show. So the more you know. This particular episode featured a special guest that night, and his name was Dr. John Money. He was a very famous and kind of controversial psychologist from the U.S. Dr. Money was being interviewed about his studies on gender transformation that were taking place at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Obviously, in 1967, gender reassignment surgeries were controversial. Not re- and not routinely performed. However, Dr. Money was renowned as being the promoter of these kinds of surgeries at John Hopkins, even creating the world's first clinic devoted to performing the controversial surgeries on adults who wanted to convert from one sex to another. Hmm. Now, the Rhymers had never considered a, what they call, quote-unquote, sex change, for Bruce at the time, but as they continued watching Dr. Money on this episode, their thinking really started to shift. Sure. So Dr. Money carried himself as an extremely confident man who truly believed in what he was doing. He never wavered from his stance that the procedures being conducted in his clinic were helping those who were born biologically as one sex, but everything inside them felt like they were another, the other, sorry. These opinions were almost unheard of at the time, and John Money uh, was out there expressing them with such conviction that the Raymer family were absolutely glued to their television set, taking in everything the doctor had to say. I bet. After an aggressive question and answer session between Dr. Money and the interviewer, a man named Alan Davis, about the ethical and moral practice of such procedures, the camera would cut to an attractive blonde woman walking out onto the set. Hmm. This woman was introduced as Diane Baranski. The show's announcer would tell the audience, until four years ago, Diane was known as Richard. Oh. So this is in 1967. I could not believe yeah. that this this early. That now, was probably floored a bunch of people. Yeah. So the Raymers were in disbelief at what they were seeing. They thought unless someone had told them that this beautiful, attractive, even sexy woman on their television screen was born a man, they would have never questioned it for a single second. Mm-hmm. I actually watched, I dug deep um, for this interview. I could not find it. I even emailed CB- CBC and <laughs> no, they, didn't, did not. <laughs> they did not get back to me. 
but I was like, I want this episode so bad. Please send it to me. And I could not find it. I could see clips of it in another documentary I watched, but like I wanted the whole thing, but I couldn't Mm. find it anywhere. So that happened a lot during the research for this, just so you know. It was infuriating. Hold it off the air. Maybe. Now, the interviewer, Alan Davis, or Alvin Davis, sorry, he would go on to ask Diane um, what the different, or sorry, the difference having the procedure had made in her life. And she responded, quote, there is a tremendous difference. It's a way of finding yourself. You actually fit into society. You're more accepted in a more normal society. She would also go on to to explain that before she transitioned, she felt completely alone in a world where she felt different and singled out. Post-surgery, she was accepted as a woman. Before the surgery, she felt incomplete. Alvin Davis then went on to ask Dr. Money about the work he was doing with another group of patients. So he did the work on the, um, like, the gender reassignment clinic for adults, but he also worked with another set of patients entirely at a different clinic. Mm -hmm. These group of patients were newborn infants who were born intersex, or at the time they called it um, with as hermaphrodites, but that's not the accepted term. But I think that just so everyone knows that term is going to come up a bit, but it only when appropriate. So, um, of course we know that being born intersex is being born with ambiguous or both male and female genitals in, okay. in a sense. Yeah. So Dr. Money explained that he and the other doctors at John Hopkins could treat these patients through surgery and hormonal treatments that would make these children into whichever sex was deemed best. Uh, By who? Yeah. (laughs) Essentially, Dr. Money believed that the biological sex that a baby was born with didn't matter and that you could raise a baby as whichever sex you wanted to. And this is what really piqued the Raymers' interest. And they knew that they had to meet this doctor and have him assess baby Bruce's case. So as soon as the broadcast ended that night in February... Janet and Ron immediately wrote a detailed letter to Dr. Money describing everything about their baby and begging for his help. They received a response, like, right away. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Dr. Money was all in, and he agreed to help the family. But before we get there, we are going to talk about Dr. Money a little bit so we can fully understand and appreciate the complex, the, all the complexities that lie ahead of us in this story, because they oh. are varied and many. Um, okay. So John Money was actually born in New Zealand on July 21st, 1921. He grew up in a very strict religious household that he described as a tightly sealed evangelical religious dogma. Oh, what a Sounds great. (laughs) He was incredibly intelligent from an early age and, of course, was bullied by the other boys because of this. Instead of trying to fit in with the boys who bullied him, he would choose to play with his female classmates and relatives who he felt more accepted by. He would also say in interviews that his father was a brutal man who was borderline abusive towards him, giving him very, like, aggressive punishments for things. He said that his father's treatment of him would lead to a lifelong rejection of, quote, the brutality of manhood, unquote. Oh. His father died when he was just eight years old, and John was quoted as saying of the death, quote, my father died without me being able to forget or forgive his unfair cruelty. After his father's funeral, he was told by an uncle that he was now to be the man of the family, which really scared an eight-year-old John. He didn't want... 
Yeah. He didn't want or was prepared for that kind of responsibility, and when he reached adulthood, he actively avoided that stereotypical role of man of the house. Now, from the time his father died, he would end up being raised in a household dominated by authoritative, strong-willed females, and would say he was often um, kind of plagued by guilt of just being a man, being born male. Really? Yeah. He would later write, quote, I wonder if the world might really be a better place for women, if not only farm animals, but human males were also gelded at birth, unquote. What, what does that mean, gelded at birth? Gelded. Gelded, with an E. It, like, neutered. <laughs> I Castrated. mean, I don't know if I disagree with him. <laughs> Just no. kidding. We love you, men. <laughs> so, while still living in New Zealand, John studied psychology at the Victoria University of Wellington, Say hi to Lisa Marie in Wellington, everyone. Coffee and Crime hi, Lisa podcast. Marie. <laughs> Go check Surpri- out the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Surprisingly, he, his first area of interest was not in gender studies, which he would go on to later, but in the creativity of musicians, about which he wrote his master's thesis. I don't really know what it is, but it's such a different side of psychology than what he goes on to do. So. Okay. Now, he would later start to narrow down his studies until he settled on the psychology of sex. John felt that being raised in such a religious household where topics like sex were hidden under the rug and not to be talked about, the study of psychology of sex would free him from his past, essentially, and separate all of that from him. Now, by the time he was in his 20s, John would become a true advocate for sexual curiosity and exploration. And in the 1970s, during the time of free love and the sexual uh, revolution, Money would step out publicly, endorsing open marriages, nudism, and other less accepted forms of sexual expression and activities. From his book, Sexual Signatures, Money wrote, quote, There is plenty of evidence that bisexual group sex can be as personally satisfying as a paired partnership, as long as each partner is tuned in on the same wavelength. Is he promoting orgies? He certainly is. That was like the nicest way to promote an orgy. <laughs> the most like professional academic way to promote an orgy. Like, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So John would later describe himself as bisexual, basically taking sexual experiences as they came with like little prejudice at all. <laughs> he was just, he was just like, just you know, a bugger. He was just <laughs> doing what felt right in the moment, going with the flow. Yeah, of course. So, in 1947, at the age of 26, Money uh, moved from the United or moved to the United States to study at the Psychiatric Institute of the University of Pittsburgh. Ooh. He left P- Pittsburgh and earned his PhD from Harvard in 1952. He would end up building quite a career in the field of sexual psychology, um, or as he referred to it, sexology. And I think that is like an actual term for some yeah. things. I, you're in this field more than I am. I don't know. But I, mean, it, I, I don't know. Sexology? I kind of like it. Like sounds it sounds like Yeah. Well. So, and people really revered Dr. Money. They really felt like he was like at the top of his game. He was the expert here. Okay. He would actually be called as an expert witness defending the 1973 porn Deep Throat. Oh, you heard of it? <laughs> Unfortunately, I have not heard of it. However, you, I can. It does paint quite a picture just in the title. How have you not heard of Deep Throat? How? Um, Where have I'm you, just not a 1970s porn watching kind of gal. 
but it is like the most famous porn of all time. And it was the I name. Just don't know. <laughs> oh my god! And it was the name that the the callers gave during the water Watergate scandal with Richard Nixon. This is Deep Throat. You don't. <laughs> how do you not know this stuff? Where have you been living for the last thirty six years, Rachel? Almost thirty seven. Just avoiding nineteen seventies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, there is a another, like, almost true crimey story that goes along with that, with the actress that performed in that movie. Oh. Her her life and career was an absolute heartbreaking shit show of oh, shit. horrible things. Um, We should cover her one day. Her name's Linda Lovelace, and it was very, oh. her life was sad. Yeah. Anyways, I wrote in here, have you heard of it? Like, cheekily. <laughs> like, have you heard of Deep Throat? And you're like, absolutely not. I thought you would have. <laughs> Anyways. No, sorry. Um, he called the film a cleansing movie that would help keep marriages together. That was his defense. <laughs> his expert defense. I feel like that's any porn, really. Just take a deep dive and... <laughs> and see what happens. You'll live happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. So, those who knew him personally stated that he enjoyed inserting certain words into his sentences, specifically fuck, cock, and cunt, just into regular conversation. Just, I, hey, fucking same. hey, cock, cunt. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote same at the end of that sentence, too. <laughs> same. Just add a little something. A little extra yes. spice to write a sentence. His college. Like, cunt is my normal, everyday greeting. <laughs> What's up, cunt? Uh, his colleagues would say that he did this as a way of desensitizing people um, for discussing sexual issues. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> I think if you're trying to talk about sex in any kind of, like, serious way, inserting things like fuck, cock, and cunt into your sentences is probably not. Hey, you little just cunt, say- rock out with your cock out. <laughs> for fuck's sake. For fuck's sakes. <laughs> okay. Plus, John Money was just very opinionated and wanted to do things differently and against the grain of what others considered to be normal. That was his whole shtick. I.e. orgies. Yeah. Now, in the 1980s, things got weird with John. His outspokenness about the controversial issues surrounding sex and free love would take a pretty awkward turn and eventually, in my opinion, a criminal turn. But that's Uh just my opinion. I know what he was doing was not technically illegal, but to me, it's like, So, firstly, and this is not the, this is awkward for me, but for people, some people, this is normal. In the mid-1980s, he turned his research into the even more taboo subjects of things like sadomasochism, coprophilia. Trust me, don't Google it. Don't Google it. I'm not telling you. I don't want to Well, now I'm going to Google it. The fuck? Just give me a little rundown. It has to do with poop, and I don't want to talk about Uh... it. Oh my god. I'll tell you something. Okay. I didn't Google it in the normal sense. I said, hey, Google. <laughs> my f- I don't want my phone to kick in. But I said, hey, Google, uh, what is coprophilia? And she came on and told me in her very googly lady voice. Can you, can we just hear Google say it now? Rachel. <laughs> I'm so curious. I don't know if she'll say it. I don't know if she'll say it on my phone because she's out in the living room. She won't. I'll, maybe I'll play it for you guys later. It's gross, guys. Just don't Google it. Just whatever you do, stay away from yeah, coprophilia. Like, the first thing I'm going to do is Google it. Like, the fact I haven't already Googled it. 
It's like playing with poop and like I don't want to get into it. It's gross. <laughs> Everybody just I'm don't it right now. Like you're torturing. Do not. How do you say? So that? <laughs> I'm not telling you again. I don't want to sully your innocence. Okay. So he would get into more taboo su- subjects such as sadomasochism, coprophilia, amputation, amputation fetishes, and auto strangulation, along with various other things. And he would actually go on to be the one to coin the phrase paraphilia, which is used oh. to describe these types types of things. So that was that was John Money. Paraf- really? Yeah. Huh. And he wanted to give it that more like, I don't know, I don't want to say professional, but clinical sounding name, I guess, to destigmatize and decriminalize these kind of sexual behaviors. Now, that was just kind of the awkward part, especially for me, because I don't like talking about that kind of stuff. It's just but, sexual arousal with feces. Yeah. You could have said with that po- so easily, Erica. You made me Google it. <laughs> it's poop. And I don't like it. Everybody I'm, poops, I, Erica. I'm not here to kink shame, but it's poop. I don't, I don't know. Poop is supposed to be somewhere where you flush it down. <laughs> <sighs> it's yeah. uncomfortable for me. But that wasn't the the weird part. Like, it's a little bit weird because it's me, but it's, it, it, that wasn't the weird part. Things got really dark when he started to talk a little bit more about pedophilia and share oh, his no, thoughts on that. Like so he's quoted in a Time magazine article from April 1980 as saying, quote, a childhood sexual experience such as being the partner of a relative or an older person need not necessarily affect the child adversely. <gasps> Unquote. No, do not like that. He would also grant interviews and write articles for other journals and magazines well known for their pro-pedophilia views and say some pretty (gasps) twisted shit. But we are not going to necessarily focus on that. We are going to be focusing more on the work that he was doing in the 1960s, uh, late 1950s and 60s when he was researching gender identity. And just so everyone knows, he did not only coin the term paraphilia, he's also credited as um coining the phrase gender identity oh what your gender identity is it wasn't used in that way to describe how somebody felt whether it 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 wasn't used in a way to describe somebody's biological sex it separated gender as something differently the way that he was using it and he was the one that originated that gender is a social construct but now that i know that this man is into pedophilia Anything he says no longer is valid, in my opinion. Well, he supported it. I don't know if he was into it, but it's up in the air. Well, he was <laughs> I don't know pedophiles, and I don't like that. Yeah. Um, it, it, this led me to reading about um, the Kinsey files or the Kinsey reports. Have you heard of those? No. Alfred Kinsey was a psychologist in, like, the 40s and 50s. Anyways, it... it Pretty messed up stuff in there, too. Most of it, most of the Kinsey stuff is, like, because he was also a sexologist, so a lot of it's, like, legit stuff, but then he does get into a lot of, like, weird pedophilia stuff where I'm, like, don't what? Love and I no. think there were, later on, even after, like, Kinsey had died, I think there were um, people looking in. I'd only briefly touched on this, so people out there who know more about this than me, please correct me. But I think there were, like, people were looking into some of his studies to find out, like, where did he get these results from? Who are these subjects that he was studying that were discussing relationships, sexual relationships with children? I so, hate that. But that's for another day and another topic. Um, but yeah, 
John Money would also write similar things. He didn't have any studies on it, but he would write similar, like, pro-pedophilia things. Gross. In essence, yeah. It's really gross. So in the late 40s, while studying at Harvard University, Money would discover a case in a medical journal of a 15-year-old boy who was born with a small, nub-like genitalia resembling more of a clitoris than a penis. And like I said, at the time... This boy was referred to as a hermaphrodite. Now, this is an outdated term, and we now would refer to someone like this as intersex. But this would be Money's first exposure to this condition, and he decided to jump in with both feet. This Mm. certainly piqued his interest, so much so that he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the subject. And the focus of this dissertation was more on the psychological side of things, examining the mental and emotional repercussions of growing up without a definite gender in terms of your biological sex. Okay. So his dissertation, which was titled Hermaphroditism, an inquiry into the nature of the human paradox, led to his invitation to join John Hopkins. And there he would work in the world's first clinic treating patients with intersexual conditions. Now, over the next several years, Money, along with a team of doctors, would research and study hundreds of intersex patients ranging in age from toddler to adult. It was through these studies that Money theorized that an intersex child's gender was not determined strictly by biology, but that a child could be taught or raised to be a particular gender. He would then recommend to the surgeons and endocrinologists that through the use of surgery and hormone treatments, they could essentially create whichever gender they wished. And by they, I mean the doctors and the parents, not the babies that they're performing these procedures on. Yeah, wow. So, like, just a flash forward, put this in 2023. Like, imagine anyone dared to try this shit. Well, we'll see. (laughs) Now, these surgeries involved cutting down large clitorises on intersex girls and doing an entire gender reassignment on boys with underdeveloped penises. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Now, this was because the reason why they did this with the boys was that it was apparently easier to create a vaginal type opening (laughs) yeah like it was easier to create a vagina in the greater scheme of things they wouldn't do it as babies but they would eventually create a vagina as the child got older and it was easier to do that than to construct a penis yeah at this time as we had learned from bruce's case so far that it would be very difficult and he's get a dick it's not easy to get a dick and you may as well move away to siberia (laughs) and never be seen again live in Now, the only restrictions that money would insist upon was that these surgeries would have to be performed within the first two years of the child's life. Otherwise, the child's psychosexual orientation wouldn't be as easy to sway one way or the other. So after two years, they may already identify as a particular gender. And so they wouldn't be able to say a little boy be turned into a little girl after two years because he already identifies as a little boy. Do you see where the problem here kind of... Oh, I see lots of problems here, Erica. Yes. It makes me... This this case really made me, like, question a lot of things and a lot of my own personal beliefs and opinions where I'm like, wait a minute here. What is happening? What are these doctors doing? So this is the late 50s, okay? Early 60s. Yeah. So yeah. 
the the parents and doctors involved with these patients would also have to commit to never disclosing the procedure to their children ever. They were oh, never allowed to. Jesus. In order for in order for everything to be successful and for them to successfully you in know, order to further traumatize their children. Further acclimate to their never tell them about this. Yeah. He theorized that by ever telling them, it would cause unnecessary confusion for the patient. So, I mean, I guess his thoughts were in the right place. Maybe. I think Dr. Money was just... Yeah. I can't help but fast forward to what you opened with. And no wonder the parents were so accepting of Brenda going back to David. So, again, Dr. Money truly believed that the work he was doing at John Hopkins was helping desperate families who just wanted their children to be quote-unquote normal. But as time went on, money began to be interested not just in intersex patients, but in those who were born as distinctly one biological sex or the other. So being born very distinctly male or very Mm -hmm. distinctly female. Mm -hmm. He wanted to study the effects of nature versus nurture on the sexual sense of self. He wrote papers on his theory that psychosexual neutrality at birth could apply not only to intersex babies, but to all babies. Wow. Babies. I, I Here's my, my, I don't want to say opinion, but my thoughts on that. Babies don't know what's happening when they're born. No, babies are babies. They are babies. literally blank slates. When you make a baby laugh, they're laughing at you because it's literally the funniest thing they've ever seen. Ever. Or they have gas. Or they have gas. Exactly. <laughs> so I think they're putting a lot of responsibility on tiny babies right here. Mm-hmm. So just saying. Now, he truly believed that gender was nothing more than a social construct, which you said, and that human beings would form their sense of self by whether or not they wore dresses or slacks or participated in activities that were stereotypically boy or girl. Hmm. So his theory was, put her in, put, put, put a, the baby in a dress, mm-hmm. they're going to be a girl. Put them in pants, they're going to be a boy. It doesn't matter which they were biologically born as. So interesting. Money and his team at John Hopkins would go on to receive several awards and recognitions for their works with their intersex patients. And by oh, 19, what? yeah, mm. and by 1963, Money was awarded a $206,000 grant from the National Institute of Health, which would sustain the unit he worked for for the next 35 years and all of his research yeah. and all of that. In the yeah. 60s, that would be like a million freaking dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. So in 1966, he was finally successful in establishing a clinic at John Hopkins for the treatment and study of adult transgender individuals. He was fascinated by the fact that some bio, that some individuals could have all of the biological makeup of one sex, either male or female, but for some reason would identify as the opposite. He felt that this fact alone proved that gender was not biological. It was not hardwired in you. It was completely environmental. I don't think that that's true either. I think there's like, a middle. I liked where he was going with it until he said it was environmental. And then it's yeah. like, well, that, now nah, you just fucking lost me. So money would recruit gynecologist Dr. Howard Jones and pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Milton Edgerton to join his team. And with his team established, money was given the honor of naming the clinic, which he called the gender identity unit. Hmm. By the time Ron and Janet uh, Raymer watched his segment on This Hour Has Seven Days, John Money had basically become a celebrity and a hero in the field of gender identity studies and psychology as a whole. 
Like, people looked wow. up to him. He was like a king. He was re- well-respected by colleagues, despite being notoriously hard to work for or with, and was considered the top authority on anything to do with this particular field of study. Hmm. Now, a lot of his theories have continued to influence the academic and scientific world to this day. They're still using his work. Yeah. Even though they know he's a pedophile? Or, I mean, he's pro-pedophile? It's to, they. There's a lot of people that support him that... Yeah, they... The they live their life in peer-reviewed people, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, shortly after seeing or shortly after receiving a response from the famed Dr. Money, Ron and Janet uh, Raymer made their first trip to meet with him at John Hopkins Center in Baltimore. This was early in 1967, and Janet said upon their first meeting, she looked up to him as a god. Sorry, she quote, looked up to him as a god, and I accepted whatever he said, unquote. Wow. John would go on to explain to the Rhymers how a sex... Sorry, the Rhymers. I don't know why I keep saying Rhymers. But it's like the buried thing all over again. <laughs> Where was I here? John would go on to explain to the the Rhymers that how a sex reassignment surgery was their best option for giving baby Bruce the life they wanted for him. He told them that they could create a perfectly functioning vagina adequate for sexual intercourse and for sexual pleasure, including an orgasm. Like, he is, they're, they are his dream. They're like, wait a second, a baby that was born a male, and you want to change its gender? Like, you're my dream. Well, because he needed a subject for... Yeah, that's what I'm his, saying. ...to study, because he this is what he wanted to do, and it was like Bruce fell into his lap, exactly. He was like, holy shit. Yeah. He also made sure that they understood that although Bruce would never be able to bear children like a typical woman, he would develop as a woman in every other way. And so just to touch on what you were just saying there, um, there was no way that anybody would have submitted a baby naturally born as a male. Because Bruce was born biologically as a boy with no problems with his genitals whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They were all intact. They were all functioning up until he was injured. And so that's why this is a unique case where he was able to perform this study on Bruce because Bruce yeah. and his parents, who, again, were very uneducated people, or not well-educated, I should say uneducated, because sounds rude, but they, they weren't well-educated. They had left school <laughs> early. So, and I think they were, they were full of guilt, and they were traumatized oh by God. their experience, and they were looking for any kind of hope. Like, and let's fix this. Yeah, and Dr. Money seemed like that, you know, the clouds were opening up and God had sent yeah. them this, this man to help them. Right. So and Dr. Money is thinking the same damn thing. 100%. And he, so he would explain all, everything about the surgery to them. What Ron and Janet weren't fully aware of was that the sex reassignment surgery that would be performed on Bruce was purely experimental on babies that were born with normal genitals. So what I mean by that is that, while they have done sex, they had done sexual reassignment surgeries in adults and on intersex babies. Yeah. Um, they had never performed the surgery and this quote unquote experiment that they were about to do on a baby that was born with the intact genitals. Right. Wow. So why is this poor little baby the like experiment on, first of all, the soldering tool and now this, like, Jesus, leave this poor kid alone. So Bruce would end up being the first non-intersex baby to ever receive this procedure and the subsequent, like, psychological treatment, I guess, that he would go on to receive from Dr. Money. Hopefully the first and the last for, like, the love of 
anything like humanity and anything whole. Like, yeah, I just ugh, now. <laughs> Ron and Janet were pretty on board for things, but they they still wanted time to think it over because this is like a huge commitment. Like they're going to completely change their son, essentially, right? So um, they told him that, you know, they're going to go home and think this over, but money was in a hurry to get things rolling because Bruce was already 19 months of age. So he was getting to that really close cutoff point of about two, two and a half where money was like, this won't work. Right, wow. that that like magical age set on that yeah. age, like where no give or take there. Yeah. Where that magical age, all of a sudden, like they just believe that they're one gender or another. Like it, mm. I, maybe it's because I'm not a psychiatrist that I just don't understand the thinking here. Listen, I just think I, I'm not. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist either or a psychologist, but as someone in the realm, that's fucked up. And I think that Dr. Money was very desperate to do this oh, experiment that and, is pr- and, pr- and prove his theory. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes. Very so Ron and Janet said that they would have to think. Oh, sorry. Is that John Money would keep sending them, send Ron, sending Ron and Janet letters, telling them that they needed to act fast because time was running out. They got to make a decision. This deal won't last for long. Prices, prices, prices. We're slashing all our price. Like he sounds like a used car salesman. <laughs> yeah. Right? Ron and Janet would end up consulting their own pediatrician who advised against Bruce having the surgery so young, stating that they thought the Ramers should wait until he reached preschool age to make a decision as important as this. And then that way they could also see how Bruce developed naturally. Yeah. Right? Um, like some logical sense finally. And there were some like rudimentary surgeries that they could do in, in order to make it easier for him to urinate until there was... Um, a you know a definitive answer of where yeah. like psych- psychological development and just let him develop naturally as he would yeah. right leave the poor kid alone right so in the end though bruce's parents would ultimately side with the quote-unquote expert and elect to have bruce's gender reassigned to female and have the operation Now, most of their decisions, like I said earlier, relied on the fact that as parents, they didn't want their son to be bullied or feel less than as he grew up, as he grew up because of something as, you know, like, insignificant as his genitals. Sure. So they thought that by doing this, it would give him a more normal life. He doesn't have to live alone in the woods? Yeah. (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Um, now, this was especially the case for his father, Ron, who knew what it was like growing up as a boy. Like, boys, you know, like, they pee in the woods. They pee in the woods together. You know, for his father, Ron, who knew what it was like growing up with a mangled dick. <laughs> no, he knew what it was like to be a boy growing up. And, like, boys will pee in the sure. woods and, and, you know, talk about their dicks, I guess. I don't know. If the locker to- room. I'm sure they compare and have sword fights all the time. Oh, yeah, just they're always walking around with their dicks out. Sleepovers? It's a, it's a pure dick fest. Who can helicopter the fastest? Exactly. If Listen, boys are allowed to have... <laughs> if boys are allowed to have those kind of thoughts about what girls do at summer parties, then we can do the same thing. Yeah. Now, and they you know, fig- if I had a dick for a day, you know what I would be doing. <laughs> Sword fights and helicoptering. <laughs> So they figured that if Bruce were to become female, then he would be saved all of the humiliation and embarrassment not having a normal penis would bring him otherwise. Um, okay, sure. cool. 
The couple stopped cutting Bruce's hair, and Janet would make some girly clothes for the baby. That and, is what makes a girl, let me tell you. This kid they, has long hair. Girl. Girl. They also renamed their daughter Brenda Lee. So on July 3rd, 1967, Brenda Raymer went into John Hopkins and underwent a surgical castration. Wow. And there was a lot there was a lot going on with the surgery and I didn't want to pretend to understand all the medical things, but essentially no, they 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 removed um the testicles and and all of that and created like a vulva oh. and um a place for the pee to come out. Like they rerouted the urethra. They re well. She already had her, uh, or he already had her urethra. What they did was they just rerouted it to come closer to like that genital area than it was with the catheter bag. Okay. So, um, but there was no vagina at this point. Okay. Just so everybody's clear, it was just the vulva. After the surgery, when the family were back in Manitoba, Janet would put her new daughter in her very first dress that she had handcrafted herself from her own wedding dress, which sounds adorable. We'll say that, that actually is really sweet. Yeah. Because you know that this mom is just trying her best. And like, yeah. Oh, exactly. Okay. So Janet would recall later that as soon as she put the dress on, Brenda started to try to rip it off and screamed and cried and kicked as if she knew she was a boy and didn't want to wear the dress. Oh. This whole thing is so sad. I told you this feels, it's a very sad story. Now, it Ron and Janet. feels illegal. Yeah. Ron and Janet would do everything they could following the advice of Dr. Money to reinforce to Brenda that she was a girl. Janet would try to involve her in the typical girly things that mothers and daughters do, but as soon as Brenda saw her father doing something more manly with her twin brother, she wanted to do that instead. Mm. Now, I feel really uncomfortable referring to David Raymer as Brenda, so I'm going to be kind of going back and forth. Mostly calling, <laughs> mostly calling him David, but where appropriate, I will be referring, I will use the name Brenda occasionally, but I'm going to say David because that's who this, this child is yeah. at the end okay. of the day. Okay. Yeah. Now, by all accounts, as a child, David looked like a girl and to anyone who wasn't aware of what had happened to him, such as close family and friends, they would never have questioned a thing when he was really young. But those who knew him would recall that as soon as David started to play and move, he was completely all boy. Everything he did was boy. Yeah. His brother Brian would say that David did not give one single shit about doing anything like a girl. And he actually once told a story to author John Colapinto of the book I said earlier, that David once received a jump rope as a gift. And instead of using it as intended, like all the other girls in the neighborhood were, he just tied people up with it. And I'm not saying that's just like a boy thing. Because no, there's lots, like, there's lots of girls out there maybe tying people up with jump ropes, but it's just to his. I think his brother's trying to illustrate that, like, yeah, he was. There's yeah, a, there's a difference between the way little girls act and little boys act, and yes. if they are trans in any way, they will act the same. Exactly, you know, like a little boy will act like in the little girl fashion. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and exactly. And that's so why what I was really. Yeah, and that's what I was really wrestling with it with this one because I was like, I get that there's gender stereotypical gender roles, but you're right. Even if it's if it is a biological little girl who's trans, even as a little girl, they'll behave 
in that more boy-like fashion. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's because in them, they are a boy. And just Mm -hmm. like David, he's hardwired as a boy. That's just the way it was for him. Mm Mm-hmm. No, he would also say that although he had loads of girly toys growing up, the only toys that he ever wanted to use were his brother's dump trucks, toy soldiers, etc. And he said his brother would say he had this toy sewing machine and it just sat there until one day he got out their dad's tools and he just took the sewing machine apart. That's the only time he ever used the sewing machine that his mom bought him. (laughs) David would also start stealing his brother's clothes, refusing to wear the pretty dresses that his mother made for him. And this would cause lots of fights between him and Brian. Yeah. So, and imagine what the parents are like, fuck, this isn't working. Like, they you persisted, know, like, and we'll get there the because they do. Probably like, ah, shit. <laughs> we'll get there. He wasn't. Spoiler alert. Oh. So their mother remembered that during their childhood, there would she, there would quote be these knockdown drago wrestling matches between them all the time. Brian was a weakling compared to Brenda. Brenda always won. Poor Brian felt <laughs> yeah. so bad for being beat up by his girl sister. Unquote. Wow. Because Brian, the mom? the mom said that. And so Brian, w- growing up, Brian had no idea that David was David. He sure. thought it was Brenda. The they knew. The mom knew, but the mom would never tell. They were instructed right. they can never tell. Right? But it's just to make a statement like that, being like, oh, he always dominated. Yeah, well, yeah. Right. So Ron and Janet felt really bad about what their daughter was going through. Their daughter, I say, because Mm -hmm. they could tell that she was struggling or he was struggling with wanting to be a boy. And they knew that he was born a boy. And so, um, but they have been strictly told by Dr. Money never to reveal the truth. And they felt that if they did, this would just escalate any confusion that was going on with David at the time. So they just pushed this to the back of their minds and carried on trying to raise David as the girl that he had been turned into. Now, they did would contact Dr. Money and tell them about their concerns, and he would just say to them, this is normal. This is just Brenda being a tomboy. It's okay. A lot of girls are like this. <laughs> Fuck off. So, but at the time, Janet found that comforting, stating that she had met many tough-as-nail women in her life that you would swear were men. <laughs> she said, like, there's just sure. some really fierce ladies out there that... So she actually said... Quote, well, maybe it won't be a problem because there are lots of women out there who aren't very effeminate, unquote. Mm-hmm. Which is true. That is true. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. They I are a fierce woman. Yeah. But I think at the same time, they're really wanting this to work because it's not just that they're trying to raise David as a little girl. They've reassigned his sex, right? Like they've yeah. already. Do they you know what I mean? That surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Janet just wanted things to work out for her child so badly that I think she was clinging to any kind of hope of positive thinking that she could muster up. Yeah. Now, David would say that he started to have doubts about his true identity very early on. And from the book, As Nature Made Him, he states, quote, you don't wake up when you're four and a half years old, look at the clock and say, yep, I feel like a boy. You're too young. I thought I was very similar to my brother. And it's not so much of me just being a guy. It's more that we were brothers. It didn't matter that I was in a dress. Unquote. Mm -hmm. When David and Brian started school, David, of course, was not accepted by the other girls. And because he appeared to be female, he wasn't accepted by the boys either. He would be bullied relentlessly by his peers. And even his teachers couldn't accept Brenda as he was. 
his kindergarten teacher actually said that for all the children that she had come across through, uh, had come, come and went through her class, quote unquote, Brenda was different and always stuck out to her. She said on the outside, she looked like all the other girls, but there was this rough and tumble rowdiness and assertiveness, pressing dominance and complete lack of demonstrable or sorry. Yeah. Demonstrable feminine interests that were unique to Brenda. Yeah. David, David would also stand up to pee at school, which would make the other children in the class uncomfortable and confused. Oh, yeah, because is that a taught practice to stand up to pee? Because peeing is learned. Like peeing is learned. in a toilet is learned, remember, right? though, Remember, though, he would have been toilet training at the same time as Brian. They're twins. They're identical twins. So, but, and that's what he just wanted to be like Brian. Yeah. Right? Well, so... Yeah, and anyway, so he would always stand up to people he was at school. This made the other girls uncomfortable, so then he wasn't even allowed to use the same bathroom as the other girls. Like, it's just very, this is, like, where it comes into, like, this was a different time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because why the fuck is a little girl getting uncomfortable that someone's standing to pee? I'll stand to pee if I damn well feel like it. Why exactly. are you watching me? Now, when Janet told Dr. Money that brenda refused to sit down to pee money told her that this was normal for girls to do and eventually the problem would correct itself okay this guy's a hey, hack dr money okay dr a quack money. sorry not a hack a quack <laughs> both now as he got older david states that he started to realize that there was definitely something wrong with him he said quote you know generally what a girl is like and you know generally what a guy is like and everyone is telling you you're a girl but you say to yourself I don't feel like a girl. I like to do guy stuff. So you figure there's something wrong here. I'm supposed to be a girl, but I'm acting like a boy. I must just be an it. Unquote. Aww. David, I want to hug you. What year is this? This would be in the 70s, right? Like mm. when they're growing up. So mm -hmm. now while David was over in Manitoba struggling with literally every part of his identity, Dr. Money was continuing with his study of not just David, but of Brian as well, his twin brother. Because you mm. see, he felt as though the fact that David and Brian were identical twins, Brian suited as a perfect control subject for oh, the experiment yeah. he was conducting. Dr. So Money like, has a hard-on for the luck that he has in that yeah. he has an identical dna control. Please. Yeah. Now... He would call his research of the Raymer twins the Joan-John study. He kept detailed notes, notes on the twins' development from in infancy until about the age of 13 is when they, they unofficially stopped seeing him. Oh, because that would have been when Brenda would have got her period? How convenient that you well, stopped your study. So throughout this time, both boys would be brought to Baltimore to meet with Dr. Money about once a year, where he would assess their individual development. And that's where Brian as a control comes in. He can see how Brian being raised as a boy compared to Brenda being raised as a girl. Mm -hmm. Now, for several years, he would write in his notes that Brenda and Brian were both developing at a normal rate for their individual gender identities. Brian was a completely normal boy and Brenda a normal, active young girl. Throughout these sessions that would take place in Baltimore, Dr. Money would ask the twins um, relating, like, would ask twins questions relating to what they knew about the differences between boys and girls. His questions would allegedly get weirder and weirder, eventually having the children explain how babies are made and what each of their genitals look like. 
And like he would in private sessions with uh, David, he would say, what makes you a girl and makes me a boy? What is the difference? And she would Unless say things he's like showing these kids because he's also pro pedophilia. This is making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> so he would say so David would answer girls have long hair, boys have short hair. And he said, oh, well, suppose I have long hair and you have short hair. You're still a girl and I'm still a boy. What else makes us different? And David would say, girls wear dresses and boys wear pants. And he would say, oh, but sometimes you wear pants. So how else can you tell? And at this point, David wouldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And would look down and he and Dr. Money would say, well, let me help you. What do you have between your legs? Mm -hmm. And she said, and David said, a flat. And he said, that's right. You're flat. And what do boys have between their legs? David didn't answer. He said, it's uh, like a little sausage. They're not flat down there. It's like a tiny sausage, right? And so the doctor, the doctor said that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Girls have a flat and a boy does not. That's what makes you different. So really focusing on the the genitals is what differentiates male and female. Wow. Yeah. Now, like I said, the questions would get weirder and weirder, um, and so would the sessions. Mm-hmm. Now, Money would eventually have the children stripped down and photograph yeah. them to illustrate exactly what the differences between a boy and a girl's genitals were, allegedly. Mm-hmm. He allegedly also showed David explicit photos of women giving birth, and this was <gasps> more when they were trying to convince, and trust me, I would have said, close me up had I been this age and been shown these pictures, but these, he was showing these pictures to show David at the time that his body was incomplete. And look, you need this hole to have babies. David would never have a baby. What was the point of this? I'm, I'm 37 in two weeks and I would be traumatized by those videos and say like never in my whole life. Let alone a child. Absolutely not. 100%. Oh God. 100%. There was also, he also allegedly showed both Brian and David pictures that were like porn, just like straight up (gasps) porn, just to illustrate that the difference between a boy and girl. I really don't know, Rachel. No, I know, but like, we don't know what else happened in those, and I keep referring to this pro-pedophilia, but we don't know what else happened in these fucking sessions, and I'm getting really angry now. Now, when it comes to the pictures, Dr. Money had written in his book called Sexual Signatures, quote, explicit sexual pictures can and should be used as a part of a child's sexual education. These pictures reinforce his or her own gender slash identity roles. How? No. Nope. I don't understand. Maybe, again, maybe I just don't understand the psychology behind it and the thinking. I really, I don't understand. I don't. No. And I, I, yeah. So according to Brian and David, during these sessions they had with Dr. Money, they would also be subjected to something termed forced sexual rehearsal. Are you fucking Let me finish. It's me. not, it's not as, it is bad, but it's not as bad as what you, you think it is. Dr. Money would allegedly instruct instruct Brenda and Brian to act out sexual acts on each other, but not, it would be overclosed. It would be thrusting. I don't give a rat's ass across the room. It's still very inappropriate, 
to like an illegal sense, but it doesn't go beyond that. And I do need to, sorry, before I get there, he would also, um, like I said, ask them to strip down. And if either child refused to participate in any of these, they stated that Dr. Money would become infuriated, demand, yell, scream at them to take your clothes off, show each other your genitals, that kind of thing. Now, I think it goes without saying that this would be traumatizing to any child and to Rachel, any Rachels. Yeah. Um, and any psychologist out there that is doing something like this should probably just drop dead. Because yeah, you're going to be reported all. because what the fuck? Yeah. Like, and saying that it's science is the thing. I'm doing this oh, because yeah. it's science. It's not I'm science. It's sexual abuse. Science. Yeah. Oh my Fucking god. Hell. Now it is very important right now that I note that Doctor Money denies these had denied these allegations. Does he still have his license? And would no, refuse he's probably to, dead by now, right? No, he's dead. Oh, he he died. Yeah, and would refuse to ever speak on this matter publicly when it was ever brought up to him. And th- oh, really? Is that because you think it's illegal? Like, if you didn't think that, if you thought that this was a legal, perfectly well, um, surprisingly act, you wouldn't be refusing to talk about it. So these notes are the only notes that are not in existence. Oh. All of the rest of the sessions are documented and this particular session was not documented so um one documentary i watched and this is gonna make you wanna throw bricks from your balcony if it hasn't already there was i forget what the guy's name is and i'm not even gonna name him because he's like totally irrelevant to me and i hate him but he was in this documentary i watched on this from the bbc and he said that he asked dr money about these allegations and he said they were absolutely untrue and he was like Enough said. Say say no more. Yeah. And he was like, there's a thing called people thinking things happen and then making them true. Oh. He said it. false memories that you believe this happened to you and so it's become so I'm like, no. I feel like that's a little too Yeah. Too a little too detailed for false well, memory there. And so. both both Brian and David recalled this. David didn't yeah. really talk about it, but David would tell later on his wife about all of these sessions like it's just yeah now throughout the rest of david and brian's childhood dr money would report his findings as a complete success despite being told repeatedly by the ramers that david had not and was not adapting as female he would most famously publish his results in his book man and woman boy and girl which was published in 1973 in the book he would talk about quote-unquote, Brenda's tomboyish ways, but emphasized the fact that she was also extremely interested in the more girly things as well, and that any activities she participated in that were considered to be more boyish was because she was copying her brother. Mm. This was, of course, in stark contrast to what David was actually going through, but I think that John Money was so devoted to having his experiment on the Raymer twins appear as as a success to prove his theory that he truly believed that what he was writing to be the full and honest truth. Like he, he talk about creating a false memory. Narrative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> false memory for sure. And like this article definitely wasn't peer reviewed, right? Because any no, other it, psychologist will be tearing it up. No, Rachel, he is one of the most famous psychologists. And no, ever. One, no one cited any biases or like just falseness in this like Eventually, no yes. We're gonna get don't worry, there are some people that we're going to get there. Don't worry. 
Now, even Money's own notes reflect the fact that David was actively trying to tell them over and over and over again that he just didn't feel like a girl, but they were clearly unwilling to actually hear him. In one session, when David was around six years old, he asked to draw a picture of himself. Now, of course, he drew what appeared to be a little boy because that's how he pictured himself. Mm-hmm. When asked to draw a person of the opposite sex to him, he drew a little girl and labeled it Brenda. Oh, my God. My whole heart just shattered. I can't. Right? Oh. I cannot. He drew one of nobody, didn't label it, and then labeled them one as Brenda as opposite to what I can't. My heart, like the whole time I was reading this, my my little heart can't handle this poor little boy. Now, David would admit later that as he got older, uh, he started to tell Dr. Money whatever he wanted to hear because it was easier. Money would get mad at him. He would end up taking hormones that were prescribed to him, which caused him to grow breasts and start going through what appeared to be a female type of puberty, like he got hips and all of that kind of stuff. Mm But as time went on, David would despise going for his yearly visits to Money's office and would often refuse, only going if his parents promised a trip to Disney World or New York City. Which sounds, yeah. Now, by the time he was 13, Dr. Money was really starting to put a lot of pressure on David to have the final surgery that would create a vagina, in turn making him a complete woman, in Dr. Money's words. David did not want to have the surgery and made that point very clear on multiple occasions. Good. In May of nineteen, back in the day, but at twelve, that's your age of consent. So leave my body alone. Right. In May of nineteen seventy-eight, David would make his last ever visit to Baltimore to meet with John Money. And during this visit, David would fill out a questionnaire, as he usually would during these visits. It was a normal thing they would do. About like he would be almost like the start of a sentence, and he would have to finish it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. His answers were heartbreaking to say the least and i'm going to read them to you now oh great so the questionnaire was compared to most family minds david wrote a loser i think most yeah next it said i think most girls are not very nice i believe most women aren't very nice either my feelings about married life are rotten if i had sexual relations I wouldn't like it. Same if a boy would kiss me. To me, the future looks bad. Oh my god. As a last-ditch effort to convince his patient to have this surgery, Dr. Money would bring in a transgender woman to try and ease any worries David might have had. And this was a a woman that had transitioned from male to female, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. He wanted the this woman to tell David about how wonderful and complete she felt after having her gender reassignment surgery. As a grown-ass adult? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. This did not work, and David ended up running from the office and stated to his parents that if they ever made him go back to see Dr. Money, he would kill himself. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, once back in Winnipeg, the Raymers met with a local psychologist, and they had met with several others um, while David was growing up. But for the most part, they they also aligned their views with Doctor with what Doctor Money was telling them. So they would review Money's files, and then they would just be like, "Well, we just got to keep trying. You can't tell him. You can't tell yeah, him he's a boy. The damage is done. Jesus. Yeah, you got to keep going. You got to keep powering through. Money says Doctor Money says this is going to work, and he's like, you know, he's the expert here. Got to trust Doctor Money. So. Um, but this particular psychologist, and I don't know, like, if, 
I like the way this woman handled it. Apparently it was wrong. So if I was ever a psychologist, I would probably get fired. But uh, the psychologist's <laughs> name was Dr. Sheila Cantor. And Cantor would be the first doctor to look at to look at Brenda slash David's medical records and finally say the one thing that every doctor, psychiatrist, counselor was afraid to say because they were afraid of Dr. Money, essentially. So during their session, Dr. Uh, with uh, not with David, but with his parents, she very candidly and bluntly told his parents that Brenda's gender reassignment was a failure, regardless of what Dr. Money was touting in his writings or on the news or even to the parents. She was just like, this failed. You need to do something. She told Ron and Janet. Get your head out of your ass. Yeah. She told Ron and Janet that it was imperative that he must be allowed to switch sex immediately and become the boy that he was. Yeah. For his fucking psyche at this point. Like, holy. The poor trauma this kid has gone through. Right. Now, the Raymers actually became angry with her because they still weren't ready to accept that everything that, that they had been through was for nothing. They wanted to believe that this was going to work. And plus, Dr. Money says it was going to work. Dr. Money is the authority. Many of the doctors that worked with the Raymer family would criticize Dr. Cantor for her bluntness. I don't, but apparently I'm wrong. And I wrote that. (laughs) I did not realize I wrote that in my notes, but I did. Um, I was, again, as I was reading this, I was thankful that somebody was saying this and doing right by this kid because nobody else seemed to be doing it. And I get that the parents are doing the best they can, but like, you're still the adult. Yeah. Right? At the end of the day. This is a wild situation. Yeah. Now, many, uh, where was I here? Yeah, and I wrote, put in here, too, that it's amazing how brainwashed people seem to be by Dr. Money, and it's infuriating to me while reading the book, because I just wanted to, like, jump in and, like, save David. Because it yeah. just seemed like everyone in this field, between Manitoba and Baltimore, and across, like, everywhere, right? Like, it wasn't just the doctors at John Hopkins that were like, no, just let it go, he's gonna be, you know, she'll adapt and all this. It was also the psychiatrists and psychologists in in Manitoba. Which I'm like, the fuck? Like, I don't understand. Oh, I can't. Now, in order to further avoid being forced into having a surgery that he didn't want, David would actually spend a lot of eighth grade just trying his best to be the girl that everyone told him he was. He thought that if he just put on makeup, played the part, maybe everybody would leave him alone and just let him be. But nothing he did cut it. (laughs) From as nature made him... Brenda, quote, was now living a life in which every instinct had to be denied, repressed, and hidden. Now, Mary McKenty was a psychiatrist that David started to see in late 1978, and for the first time, David was able to build a trusting, caring bond with one of his doctors. Wow. Her approach was more about reaching him and helping him and not about conforming Dr. Money's theory, conforming to Dr. Money's theories about what David should be. Imagine he, like, he's seen how many therapists or psychologists and psychiatrists and doctors, and this is the first one he felt he could trust? Yeah. Heartbreaking. Now, during sessions with Dr. McKenty, David would express some real concern about an upcoming visit from Dr. Money, who would be delivering a speech at the local university. And apparently, this speech included a slideshow of some extremely disturbing paraphilias, including the one we discussed earlier. And he talked about some very dark shit, like how incest should be legal and sex between stepfathers and stepdaughters is actually a pretty good thing. You know, Uh, he sounds like he's becoming unhinged. Like, I just don't understand. You know what? A child having sex with a man 
It's okay. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Now, this visit um, in Winnipeg was brief, lasting only one evening, and would mark the last time that the Raymers would ever see John Money in person again. Thank God. Oh, my gosh. On June 8th, 1979, David would finally open up to Dr. McKenzie about his confusion over his genitals. Like, his physical genitals. Mm-hmm. Earlier, um, earlier, his father had told him that there had been, that they were different because there had been an accident when he was a baby, which isn't a lie. But he never elaborated on what that accident was or what had happened. Jeez. When asked what he thought happened, David stated that he believed that his mother had beaten him between the legs. Now, when Janet Raymer was told about what David had said, she was absolutely horrified that he would think she would ever harm him in any way. And I think this is when things started to really shift for the Raymers and everyone involved in this, except for Dr. Money, who was still sticking to his belief that his experiment had been a complete success. Now, the poor mom, the child thinks that he, she beat him? Like, what the, oh my god, yeah. this poor, like, just the whole, ugh. The whole thing is sad. The whole family. I feel bad for everybody except for Doctor Money. Now, in the Doctor Money can go get fucked. Yeah, in the fall of 1979, it was all agreed that David. It was agreed that David would actually start attending a vocational school. He was being bullied pretty badly at the other school, Mm -hmm. um, instead of attending his regular high school. And it was at this point that he decided to take matters into his own hands. He decided that he was just going to start living as a boy, whether people liked it or not. Dressing as a boy, doing his hair like a boy. Fuck yes. Um, his parents were not happy with this because it did not adhere to the experiment, you know. Mm-hmm. He stated, quote, I got sick to death of doing whatever everyone wanted me to do. I got to that point in my life. I knew I was an oddball. I was willing to live my life as an oddball. I wanted to wear my hair in a mess and that's how I wore it. I wore my clothes the way I wanted to, unquote. Good. Good. Yeah. On March, yeah. On March 14th, 1980, uh, Ron picked David up from one of his appointments with Dr. McKenty. Now, before driving home, he told David that they were going to get an ice cream cone. And David started thinking, well, this is pretty weird. Is there something wrong with mom or Brian? Like, am I in trouble? Like, what's happening here? Because when you go and get ice cream with dad, something's got to be a up. Good thing. Yeah. Now, they sat together eating their ice cream. And Ron, very calmly, quietly, carefully, started to tell David everything about who he truly was. This was the day that parents had made the decision that they were going to come clean because they could not watch what was going on with with their child any longer. Is he 13 or 14 at this age? He's about in between 13 and 14. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Now, David said later that he hardly remembers this conversation, just that he felt entirely numb, but at the same time feeling every possible emotion all at once. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Now, one emotion would eventually take over all the others, and that, Anger. David said, was relief. He said, oh. quote, suddenly it all made sense why I felt the way I did. I wasn't some sort of weirdo. I wasn't crazy, unquote. Mm-hmm. Now, the only question David had for his father was, what was my name? Now, mm-hmm. if you remember, his name was not David, it was Bruce, mm-hmm. but we'll get there soon. Now, the transition from female um, back to his original sex of male was almost immediate. He told Dr. McKenty that as soon as he turned 18, he was going to have the surgery to turn him from girl to boy. And after a few more sessions, he decided that he wasn't going to wait that long. He wanted to have that surgery now. He also told her that he had officially decided to change his name to David. And this was after the biblical story of David and Goliath. He said the name reminded him of courage. 
Yeah, and Goliath is that stupid, mo- like, money He's Dr. Guy. Money, yes. Yeah, I'm going to take you down, you little motherfucker. Right? So many of the people who knew David said that once he made the decision to be his true self, he went from Brenda, who was sullen, withdrawn, and miserable, to David, who was the complete opposite. He seemed truly happy for the first time. Oh my gosh, now, I love that for him. That summer, David started taking testosterone, causing him to grow some facial hair, and actually had a growth spurt of over an inch in height. Mm. And in the fall, he underwent a double mastectomy to remove his breasts. Now, he would wait over a year because that was a very painful recovery. So he would wait for over a year. But the next summer, on July 2nd, 1981, David underwent uh, his first surgery to create a penis. And for the next couple of years, David had a hard time adjusting to his new life. But by the time he was 18, he would start going out with his brother to hang out with Brian's friends. And everyone just immediately accepted him as one of the guys. Now... If they would also tell um, all these guys that Brenda had died in a plane crash and David was Brian's oh. cousin, the boys would, okay. because they were like, how do we explain this? Like, I don't think the parents necessarily had anything to do with mm-hmm. this. The parents told their family what had happened, like, what was going on. They always knew that Brenda was Bruce. Yeah. If originally, right? So, yeah. um, I think this was just what they had told the, the friends, right? Just so that they didn't have to go into it like a huge explanation however some of them went to high school with the with david and brian so they were like uh something's weird here because you look exactly like brian i was just gonna say how does your cousin look identical to you yeah so also around this time he would receive the settlement money from the hospital from the botched circumcision so his parents had used some of that money to pay for you know all of dr money's treatments and the Mm. surgery at john hopkins and all of that Um, but he did have quite, I think over like a hundred thousand dollars still left at the time. So he would use some of this money to buy a cool van and try to impress the ladies. However, (laughs) that'll do it for sure. Um, Yeah. So dating was extremely hard for David though. And he struggled with like figuring out what he would tell a potential girlfriend about his condition. And when this situation did present itself, instead of being understanding and compassionate, the little bitch that he was dating gossip to everyone and he became the butt of a, the joke again, which is really fucking sad. It is sad, but what did he say? Did he, he, just he like, didn't say anything. Like, it's no. just what it is. No. So what happened was that to avoid like sexual contact of any kind with these girls that he was hanging around with, he would just get really drunk and pass out. But one night he passed out and she stayed and she looked down his pants Oh, and then when he, when she asked, no, it's not, but she was a 16 year old girl. Like still, I mean, I can't excuse it. It's not appropriate. I would have never done that at 16. I knew, would know it no. was wrong, but, um, however, um, he, she asked him like what happened and he said, I was in a motorcycle accident. It was, you know, I was disfigured, whatever, but she still went and told everyone, which just like, he was, you know, just learning to live a happy life and then was again reverted back to that feeling of humiliation and shame that he he had as a child yeah so unable to bear with the humiliation david attempted to take his own life by swallowing a bottle of his mother's antidepressants oh no thankfully his parents found and were found him and were able to take him to the hospital and save his life now this he would attempt to take his life several times throughout really? the next few years, but he was never successful. He did choose 
to live at this point. So, but he did spend the better part of a year withdrawing from pretty much everyone. And he would go to this cabin that the family had just to be alone with his thoughts and figure out what he wanted from his life and spend a lot um, of time there by himself. Like the original fucking diagnosis. Exactly. No, oh, that's oh. sad. I never actually even thought about that. Oh, now, my eventually two of his friends came to the cabin and they would event, and they convinced him to leave and go on vacation with them and just leave the problems behind let's go to Hawaii. And he was like, sure. So on January 2nd, 1986, the three friends hopped on a plane and landed in Honolulu. And it was during the plane ride there that uh, David would turn to his friend Harold and said, there's something I got to tell you about Brian's sister, Brenda. Harold turned to David and just said, you don't have to, I already know. And that was that. They never discussed it again. Yeah. So That's they, the kind they, of friend everybody needs. Exactly. Like, oh, everyone be a Harold, please. I believe that Harold is in the doc, the Horizon documentary that I watched on BBC. I'm going to link it in the show notes. Um, it's a great documentary. with And David is, is in it. The whole Raymer family is in it, actually. So mm. now I'm questioning, is it Raymer or Rhymer? I don't know, Rachel. I don't know. I say words bad. Raymer. Rhymer. I think if it was Rhymer, it would be R-I-E. Rainer, yes. R-E-I. Yeah. Yeah. Let's stick with it. Now, after he arrived home from his vacation, the doctor informed him about this new type of artificial penis. Now, mm. this penis would look look and feel more like the real deal, and through a new type of microsurgery, it could actually feel sensation during intercourse, which is oh my gosh, in the eighties, that is yeah. pretty impressive. So, just before he turned twenty two, he had his second phalloplasty. Uh, and as well as a procedure called, I took this right out of the book, just so everyone knows I did not change it in any way, shape or form to make this my own. It is called a microvascular right radial artery forearm flap reconstruction, which is an operation in which the flesh, nerves and an artery from David's right wrist to elbow were cut away and formed into a tube to build his new urethra and a main and the main body of his penis. There was a segment of cartilage that was grafted from one of his left ribs to give structural support to the organ. Sounds I, wild. Um, I, okay. I Sounds to say about that. Wild. Now, after the surgery and recovery time, David says he remembers driving home in the car and he just started to cry over or how much he had overcome in his life. Just crying. <laughs> like, think? I've got a, I've got this dick. I got this dick. And look at <laughs> Check me. Check out this dick. Did he get to, like, pick the size of his dick? Is that how this works? I have no idea. I don't know. Doc, they give... you better cut a large chunk of that rib because <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> right. I want a hammer. It didn't go into that much detail. But he he, he was so happy like, that at home how much he had overcome and everything he had been through and where his life was heading that he just burst into tears. I bet. Oh, my gosh. Now, after this, David found himself preoccupied with thoughts of marriage, kids, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And he just couldn't figure out how he would go about this. He thought, what if the woman I love and I want to marry wants kids and then finds out that I can't give her that life? But he wouldn't have to wait long to find out what the answer to that would be, because two months later, his brother and his brother's wife introduced him to a friend of theirs called Jane Fontaine. Jane, Jane Fontaine. Yes. If that's not the best name you've ever heard, like I just want to. Hi, I am Jane. Jane Fontaine. Fontaine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. 
Jane was a 25-year-old single mother of three, and by the end of their first date, there was no question that sparks were flying. The -hmm. two would spend more and more time together, and by the time David got up the courage to tell her about his accident, Jane stopped him in his tracks and told him that she already knew and she did not care. And that's how she knew because Brian had told her. I was going to say, Brian's a little gossip busy now. (laughs) Well, I think to sort of prepare her right and it would it obviously worked it eased the blow for for david as well right sure. or eased the tension <laughs> but imagine so, she's like he's like listen i'm i'm gonna meet want to introduce you to my brother but i need to download you on some of the shit <laughs> yeah exactly well she, he's probably like i just want to let you know that this is what's happened mm-hmm. and you know if you're not interested in meeting him and if that's enough, like, to say no way, then don't even bother. I think that that's yeah. actually a good thing, right? Yeah. So, well, I mean, it shows the kind of, like, amazing well, woman that Jane is. Right. And this is how, actually, David knew that she was the real deal. Like, this was yeah. it. Yeah. So the couple moved in together in the fall of 1989 with Jane's children. And shortly after David proposed, on September 22nd, 1990, David and Jane were married. David would also go on to adopt all three of Jane's children. Oh, yes. What a fantastic ending to this yes. tragic Well, and it, and, and in one part of the documentary, they said that, you know, people would often say to him, you're not a man. Look at you. You can't have kids. You can't make a baby. You can't do this. You're not, you know, like, you don't even have a real dick. And he was like, you know what? Maybe the three fathers of the children that I'm raising are real men but i think i'm more of a man of that than them because look who's raising their kid it's not them it's biological men but they're not well he's still a biological he's still a biological man he stepped up way farther than all of those men put together he's more of a man than there and that's why because they weren't saying that because like they people wouldn't say that to him thinking that he wasn't a biological man they knew he was but it was just because of his yeah phalloplasty balls get out of here like i don't understand yeah so, yeah, but he did say, I'm more of a man than any of those three guys yeah, that made a together. baby with my wife because I'm the one raising those kids. Yeah. So. Now, while wow. David is out living his amazing life, the psychiatrists and doctors that had previously worked with him in Canada were wrestling with a conundrum of their own. They were considering whether or not to publish the true results of Dr. Money's twins experiment, which they Please knew were that David or the Brenda Brian experiment was now was David Bryan. Brenda was a fail. Yeah. So one, doc- one doctor named Keith Sigmundson recalled that he really wanted to reveal the fate of jo- Joan John. However, he was scared shitless of John Money. And just to, I know I didn't mention it much, but the experiment was called the Joan John experiment. Yeah. Just yeah. in case anybody's forgotten that. But everybody in that field was scared of John Money. He was so well known and just so powerful. Right? So... Now, there was another doctor from the U.S. who wasn't even the slightest bit afraid of John Money. In fact, this doctor could be considered his arch nemesis. And his name was Dr. Milton Diamond. And we are going to talk about him a little bit more in a, in a couple minutes here. But since David had transitioned back to male, Dr. Money was very tight-lipped about the entire experiment, refusing to talk about whenever asked. Now, he would often tell students and colleagues who did ask about the twins that due to the fact that reporters from the BBC had hounded the family for a documentary, the experiment and the family had been irreparably damaged and he just lost track of them. Oh, you're so devoted to this experiment. Absolutely. 
Oh, This, of course, wasn't true. Money knew exactly what was happening in David Raymer's life. As his mother had written John, telling him about David transitioning back to male, that he was married, that he had adopted children, and John even sent a reply stating that he would love to hear from David, a feeling that David did not reciprocate for obvious reasons. Yeah. 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 Now, even though he didn't reference the twins' case, Money still stuck to his guns that all infants were born gender-neutral and could be raised as either sex, but kept it more to boys with abnormal penises or intersex children than he did wow. with, with kids born with more distinct genitalia. Yeah. So, not only that, John Hopkins also backed John Money, stating that they would continue to the practice of reassigning and raising intersex babies as girls, rather than adopting the more current procedures and hormone therapies that were now arising in other areas around the U.S. So Uh. there was a lot of push, um, and there's still a lot of push now, to wait as the uh, Raymer's original um, uh, pediatrician had told them. Yeah. Right. To, and I read an article from McGill University, um, and it was from 2021, and it was about um, in uh, the intersex community are petitioning because they feel like when you're an infant and you have your genital your genitalia assigned to you. Mm-hmm. so young that it it's technically like to them it should be an infringement of that individual baby's rights according right. to the charter yeah. of rights of freedoms right yeah um, it's like forcing transgender yeah right it's well it's not forcing trans it's it's committing that child to one or the other without that child i know that there's certain things that as adults we have to make decisions for but mm-hmm. Why make that big of a decision when the decision can simply be to be sure that that child is healthy physically? Yeah. At, when it comes to whatever whatever abnormalities have happened um, with their their genitals, right? So as long yeah. as they can pee and poop, that's all they need then genitals for. Yeah, exactly. So let's make sure we fix them up to be able to do that, but not do the full re the full gender assignment or reassignment, right? Mm. Is just, let's just leave babies. Just, yeah. Yeah. How many did they get wrong over the years? You know, exactly. Exactly. mm. So, yeah. So there's, I'm going to post that McGill university article in the show notes as well, because it was an interesting article and uh, Mm. I think it's an interesting read. So I'm going to post it there for you guys, but um, yeah. So where was I here? In the early 1990s, Dr. Money's arch nemesis, Milton Diamond, had started to grow. This is the guy I just said we'd talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. He had started to grow a little frustrated over the fact that he hadn't heard any follow-up, updates, nothing about about Money's most famous experiment, the twins case. Yeah. Even more curiously, when Money published his somewhat of like an autobiography-ish kind of book thing, in 1991, which basically laid out all the hard work he had done over the years, Milton was shocked to learn that the most triumphant case in Money's career was suspiciously missing from the voluminous, 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 collect, yeah. voluminous collection of work. Now, <laughs> Milton Diamond would end up getting in touch with Keith Sigmundson in Manitoba. Oh. Sigmundson was still wary of going public with the truth about David and Brian, but Milton Diamond was, if nothing else, unrelenting. Mm -hmm. 
He also saw that Diamond had done years and years of research disproving several of John Money's theories and came to believe that what he had been doing to children was causing more harm than good on, on a great scale. Eventually, Sigmundson was able to convince David to come on board and meet with Milton Diamond. During this meeting, David would learn for the first time that he was basically like a celebrity due to his successful transition from boy to girl as an infant, which we know was not successful. Mm -hmm. He was mortified to learn that the success of his case set the precedent for which thousands of sex reassignments have been performed on babies. Wow. Yeah. Now, working with both David and Sigmundson, Diamond would work for over a year to properly present the results of the twins' experiment and expose it to the public. David's entire life served as living proof that John Money's theories were bunk, and he had falsely reported the results of his experiment for what reason? Who knows? To save Faze, because yeah. he's a dickhead who is doesn't want to be a coward. It probably would have ru- ruined his career. It probably yeah. would have destroyed him in every way. So, well, hopefully, this ruined his career even more because now he has been proven to be a liar. Right. So from the book, As Nature Made Him Again, Diamond argued that while nurture may play a role in health. So this is Milton Diamond, not money, not Dr. Money. Milton Diamond argued that while nurture may play a role in helping to shape a person's expressed degree of masculinity or femininity, nature is by far the stronger of the two forces in the formation of a person's private inner sense of self as man or woman, boy or girl. I take that to mean essentially you cannot force a gender identity on someone. They are always and forever will be who they are meant to be. Mm -hmm. It would take years before Diamond's paper got published because too many people were afraid. Um, They, yeah, most major publications thought it would be too controversial, but mostly it was because they were afraid of Dr. Money. They didn't Mm -hmm. want to piss this guy off. But in September of 1996, the article was accepted by the American Medical Associations, I think that's it, American Medical Associations Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, and was slated to be put to print in March of 1997. This article was met with mixed reviews, and many thought that Milton Diamond was just trying to humiliate and destroy John Money's career, but there were still many who congratulated Milton for having the balls to go up since like go against such a powerful person in this field. So I'm very curious how they can say that they have mixed, like they don't believe in diamonds work when David exists. It's living proof. Like, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's nothing to deny. Well, they would say, because Dr. Money would say that the experiment was tainted by the BBC documentary. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Like they tainted my research. So it didn't work. And they made professional would know that that's just, a load yeah. of shit. Yeah. Now, one of the recommendations that Milton and Sigmundson brought up in the paper was just to simply delay the reassignment surgeries until the child could clearly state which sex they had a desire to live as. Mm-hmm. Which, and you know, I work in a kindergarten classroom. Most kids, they have a pretty good idea of who they are. I'm not saying that it's like, let's, you know, like if a little boy comes to school wearing a dress or whatever, like that we should be like planning his entire future thinking that he's going to, you know, identify as female. That's not what I'm saying. But a lot of our, the kids I work with, they're pretty confident. You know what I mean? Like they're, they know, have a general sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. 
And this is all that that people that Milton Diamond and Keith Sigmundson were saying. They're not saying that don't ever perform these surgeries. Do it when it's necessary and when, yeah, just wait. Cause it's not, what else are you, what are you using your genitals for between the ages of birth to adolescence and hopefully maybe a little older than adolescence? Yeah. Peeing and pooping. Yeah. Nothing. It's a big, boring, empty basement down there (laughs) for all those years. Right. So yeah, their basic thing is just wait. So now there is one powerful quote from the book that stated, quote, we have to learn to listen to the children themselves. They're the ones who are going to tell us what the right thing is to do, which I agree with. Mm -hmm. Now, once the article went live in March, the media swept in like vultures that they are. And it was top news that the famous case of the boy raised as a girl was a failure. Every major newspaper was writing about it. News programs were doing special, specially devoted episodes to it, and David was approached to be interviewed on TV. And he did agree to talk about his experience as long as he was ensured total anonymity. Wow. However, as the story picked up more steam, David became more confident and wanted to not only tell his story, but show his face. Mm. So, so he would be featured on the Oprah Winfrey show. Again, I tried to find this whole interview and there's pieces of it on YouTube, but you can't find the whole thing. Even Oprah. Oprah, yeah. It was hard to find. find Oprah. Really? There's clips of David talking, David and Janet and Brian talking on it, but it's, um, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. So they would go on there and they would recount their almost unbelievable story. Like, just, you couldn't believe that it happened, especially at this time in the 90s when this was, when they were doing the stories. But that was just the beginning of the healing for the Raymer family, and it would take a lot of time for Ron and Janet to forgive themselves for what happened to their son. But David said that he forgave his parents. He knew that they were only doing what they thought was best for him, and any actions that they took were out of love for their baby boy. Which is, like, shows how big of a heart David had. Really? Yeah. Now, for David's brother Brian, the road to healing was a much rockier one. From the time that the truth about his brother was revealed. Brian struggled immensely to accept that their whole lives had been a lie. He got into a lot of trouble as a teen and his early adulthood and even attempted to take his own life on one occasion by drinking drain cleaner. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because you don't think about the impact it has on his brother, but for sure. He has been lied to too. He's been... Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. And they have that twin bond, so it's going to impact all. Yeah. Now, and the other thing too was that everything was always about Brenda growing up. Yeah. And then when Brenda was, was David, it was now all about David, but for different reasons. It was never... Brian, 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 Brian always had to take a backseat. Exactly. So, um, now eventually it would seem that Brian had straightened himself out, but he would find himself still wearing a mask and he had married, started a family. That marriage would end in divorce. And after this, he found himself unemployed, struggling to raise his children. And he began to drink in excess and suffered extreme depression. He, he tried to pull himself together over and over again, but sadly at the age of 36, Brian would be found dead of a drug overdose on July 1st, 2002. Oh, no. Rest in peace, Brian. I'm so sorry to hear that. Now, this was, of course, devastating to the entire Raymer family. And according to his parents, David was never truly the same after the death of his brother. 
Um, they had had a falling out because of Brian's excessive drinking and drug use. They were estranged at the time of Brian's death, and David really struggled afterwards with accepting that he never repaired that relationship with Brian. Um, Plus, like you said, they had the twin bond, so it was, and Brian was truly the only other person that understood what David had gone through growing up because he had been there living this with him, living in the lies that were being told to them. And um, he, Ron uh, would say that David would go to Brian's grave, Ron is their father, said that he would go to Brian's grave and talk to him every day, bring him flowers, leave notes on the, on the heads, on the gravestone. Um, But yeah, he just was never the same. And to make matters worse, shortly after Brian's death, David's wife, Jane, would ask for a separation and move out of their home. David would soon lose his job and make some bad investments, causing him to lose almost all of his money. He sank into a deep depression, and two years after the loss of his brother, David, too, would take his own life. (gasps) On May 4th, 2002, David drove to a grocery store in Winnipeg, parked his car, and shot himself. Now, even though David isn't with us, his legacy and his story has inspired and taught the world of psychology so much about biology, gender, and sexual identity that we would have never known. So, and the twins experiment, although an abysmal failure, would serve as a what-not-to-do manual for future cases like David's. And I don't, I, I wish that he would know the impact that he made on this part of society. So rest in peace david i know it's an awful now at the end of that bbc documentary that i've referenced a few times they because david was in this documentary it was the last interview he did before his death and at the very end of that interview he said um about the people not believing that the experiment failed He said, I'm living proof, and if you're not going to take my word as gospel because I have lived through it, who else are you going to listen to? Who else is there? Is it going to take somebody winding up killing themselves, shooting themselves in the head for people to listen? No, he didn't say that. Oh, I have chills. (gasps) Right? Oh, my God, Erica, I have goosebumps. I know. It's so sad. This is why I said I had. shit ever. I had to cover this because it's such a horrible, horrible thing that happened to someone. And like I was, yeah, that's why I said I I found this case on Thursday and I like did not stop writing, reading, awful. Yeah. Now, John Money, for anyone who cares, two years after David's death, John Money would pass from complications from Parkinson's disease. He died just one day before his 85th birthday. He is, to this day, still looked at as a pioneer in gender identity studies, and many of the practices of today are based on the work he did throughout his career. That's fun. I think at some point, what John Money was doing was good stuff. I think he had the right idea, was on the right path, until he started to come up with theories. Yeah, theories that were so unhinged and you could see that as even after the experiment the twins experiment that he would continue on and keep pushing and pushing the further and further reaches of the psychology of sex to the all like we said to the pedophilia thing where it was just like what hasn't he explored so he just had to keep going sad that he didn't get arrested right well now if you want to know so much more about this story than i was able to present here today 
I strongly suggest you read the book As Nature Made Him that I quoted continuously throughout this entire episode. It's by John Colapinto, Colapinto, and I'm going to link it in the show notes. There is the updates in the back of that book because it was written in the um, late 90s, early 2000s. So there are some updates in there um, in the like afterward and the epilogues and all of that. So um, check that out if you if you get a chance, it's a really good book and it's all about David. So it really tells his story in a really clear way that I know like I've tried to do here. I don't know if I've done it justice, but yeah. Again, I can't, I don't know if it's necessarily true crime in the sense of the murder and all of those kind of stories that we would normally cover, but it's definitely something that crime is crime. It doesn't have to be murder. I know. I know that. And like, wow, there that's definitely borderline, like on the border of illegal. If it's not already, it should be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that is the story of the Reimer twins. Wow. And I'm feeling emotional, so I think I'm just gonna go because that was harder at the end of that for me than I thought it was gonna be. So Yeah. That is You know what happens that and it's should be you know, No, yeah. You know what happens to me is that I get so into it and I'm researching it that I'm not, I I separate it, like I compartmentalize it. So, but this one was like, it hit me because I just think the kids should get to be kids and shouldn't have to worry about all this stuff that David worried about. I know. It bothers me. I wish I could give you a hug. It bothers me. He didn't get to live his childhood and didn't get to live his adulthood because of it it yeah. bothers me a lot so anyways oh thank you all <laughs> thank you all for listening and we will see you next time follow us on instagram at story crime pod and send me an email uh oh, at story crime pod your virtual hugs <laughs> yeah at story crime pod at gmail.com i don't know maybe i'm Oh, maybe I'm hormonal. Oh, you getting your period. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> oh, God. And whatever, like, and pause. And guys, if Pedro Pascal is sexiest man of the year, you guys all owe me a coffee on buymeacoffee.com. <laughs> Have I a good night, everybody. So I love you, too. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> oh, my God.